Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Hamblin. Michael Hamblin is a world-leading expert in photobiomodulation and photodynamic therapy. His roles have included Principal Investigator at the Wellman Center for Photomedicine, Massachusetts General Hospital, and an Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. He has published over 420 peer-reviewed articles, is Editor-in-Chief of Photobiomodulation, Photomedicine, and Laser Surgery, and Associate Editor for 10 journals. He has authored or edited 23 textbooks on photodynamic therapy and photomedicine, and is a member of the Society of Photo-Optical Instrumentation Engineers, where he was elected as a fellow in 2011. He has received the first Andre Mester Lifetime Achievement Award in Photomedicine from the NAALT in 2017, the Outstanding Career Award from the Dose Response Society, and the first Ali Yavan Award for Basic Research from Walt in 2018. Our conversation was extremely interesting and enlightening. Michael is a wealth of knowledge and always willing to offer his thoughts. I feel so privileged to have had a chance to speak with Michael. I believe his work will be pivotal in the way photobiomodulation is implemented into medicine and lifestyle habits in the coming decades. With all that being said, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for coming to speak to me today. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, but um, I'd love to know how you got involved in the world of uh, photobiomodulation and photodynamic therapy. Okay, so I got my uh, PhD in synthetic organic chemistry. And, you know, while working with various organic compounds, um, began to be interested in compounds which can act as photosensitizers. So these are deeply colored compounds or dyes even, which because they're deeply colored, absorb visible light. Now, the majority of dyes are inactive, such as the dyes you put on your fabric. You know, fabric dyes don't do anything. But other dyes do do things when they absorb light. And some of them are fluorescent. These are fairly well known. But others can do photochemistry. And when they do photochemistry, they can produce reactive species which kill things. And this was discovered 120 years ago and eventually morphed into what we know as photodynamic therapy. So the idea is that if you can target these dyes to certain cells or tissues and you shine light on them, you generate these reactive species, reactive oxygen species, which can kill the cells. So this became quite popular as a treatment for cancer because they discovered you you could localize some of these dyes in tumors, that they had a propensity to accumulate in tumors. Also, you can use them to treat infections because some of other different dyes will bind to bacteria and fungi, um, all sorts of nasty pathogenic microorganisms. And you can be selective to tissue because you know, if you design the dyes right, you can be target tumors, target infections, target unwanted tissue, such as blood vessels that grow in the eye or atherosclerotic plaques. 
all sorts of unwanted cells and tissues can be selectively destroyed by designing the right kind of dye and exciting it with the right kind of light. So having worked in this area of photodynamic therapy for quite a long time, I guess about 15 years, I started to look at the effects the light on its own can have. Because you have to do control experiments, whether that's in cell culture or in mice or what have you. You have a control experiment, which is just the light and no photosensitizing dye. And what you generally find if you do that is the light alone has exactly the opposite effect as the light plus the dye. So the light plus the dye, as I said, generates these reactive oxygen species that kill tumor cells and infectious microorganisms. But the light alone has the opposite effect. So it stimulates the growth and the survivability of cells and tissues. Now, if that's a tumor, that's not what you want to do. So that's one reason why photobiomodulation is not used on cancer. If it's an infection, again, that's not what you want to do. So you don't generally use photobiomodulation on infections. But nearly every other part of the body, it is what you want to do. You want to heal it, stimulate it, protect it from dying, increase its functionality, um, you know, especially when people get older, things start to wear out. So you get all these degenerative conditions where things are wearing out. Um, injuries are a big problem. Um, you know, people obviously heal from injuries, but you know, healing is often slow and not as perfect as you'd like it to be. Um, so in addition to healing, restoring, regenerating, preventing tissue from dying, it turns out that photobiomodulation can do a lot of other beneficial things. It can very good at reducing pain and the mechanisms for how it can reduce pain are you know, still under investigation, but it's also very good at reducing inflammation. Um, so pain, inflammation, prevention from dying, stimulating regeneration, um, these are all characteristics of the light alone. Um, I don't know whether you want me to pause a bit or just carry on. I well, mean, there's so many avenues that I could that I could um, you know so many lines of questioning I could take, but I'd like to ask a little bit more about the photodynamic therapy and whether I imagine that there are different dyes with different absorption spectrums and you'd be using different frequencies of light to interact with the dyes. Um, is so do yeah. you use a whole array of different dyes and, and wavelengths depending on the purpose? Yeah. So I mean, you know, in the field of photodynamic therapy, there's maybe two or three hundred different dyes have been reported. Now, some of these are derived from natural sources, so things in nature that are deeply colored. So for instance, your blood is a very deep red and hemoglobin and has a dye called 
porphyrin, protoporphyrin, in the hemoglobin. So that's a very good natural dye. Um, plants and leaves and grass is a very deep green, and that has a dye uh, derived from chlorophyll. Chlorine-type compounds are the green dyes that give chlorophyll its green color. And then a third example is blue-green algae, which again absorbs sunlight. It's a photosynthetic thing, and that has a deep purple dye called a bacteriochlorin. So those are three examples of natural dyes that, if you do the chemistry right, can be photoactive. So it's important to point out that in their natural state, they're not photosensitizers. Okay, chlorophyll absorbs light, it's designed to do that, but it doesn't kill the plant. It synthesizes carbohydrates. But if you do a little chemistry, you can make the green dye from chlorophyll into a very good photosensitizer. Um, same applies to bacteria chlorins. Hemoglobin is not designed to absorb light red blood. I mean, it does. It does it very well. But that's not evolutionarily why it was designed. It was designed to transport oxygen. But nevertheless, if you do the chemistry right, you can make very good photosensitizers. Now, a whole range of other ones are synthetic organic compounds that people have designed in the laboratory specifically to act as photosensitizers. And there's a lot of those, hundreds of those even. Some are better than others. It's difficult to use them in the clinics because it's very expensive to do all the toxicology testing and animal testing in order to use them in the clinics. So the ones that are used in the clinics you know, tend to be being discovered 20, 30 years ago because really it's the companies don't have the money to really advance all these new photosensitizers, although most of them are better than the traditional ones. But as you say, each photosensitizer has its own absorption maximum. So it's fairly broad. So you're talking 20, 30 nanometer widths of a peak. You know, so a lot of people use lasers to excite them, but you don't need lasers. Same as photobiomodulation, you don't need a laser. LEDs do it very well. And with PDT, people even use filtered lamps. So they would have, you know, like arc lamps, mercury lamps with a filter on. Um, you know, there's a famous example of uh, when they were doing PDT for skin cancer, they used a slide projector. And that was a clinical trial with a slide projector. But wow. nobody has so, a slide projector anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so how how are the um, these sensitizing agents selectively killing malignant cells and leaving the uh, healthy cells alone within photodynamic therapy? Right. So there's two ways. So one is the dyes, if you inject them into the bloodstream, will selectively accumulate in tumors because of a variety of mechanisms. But probably the most important mechanism is the abnormal blood supply to a tumor which is leaky and disorganized and tends to accumulate things um there are other mechanisms that injected dyes for 
some, like skin cancer, for instance, you generally put the dye on topically onto the tumor. But the important thing is you only shine the light on the tumor. That, that's a key thing. So, um, you know, you can focus the light quite well. If the tumor is inside the body, you can often get at it with catheters with fiber optics inside. So you can do that in the lungs, you can do it in the esophagus, in the colon, in the bladder. Um, and sometimes you can even insert needles from outside, put a little fiber optic down the needle. So in principle, you can get at all tumors, even deep inside the body, by delivering the light via fiber optics. That's uh, that's really fascinating. Fiber optics seem to um, be very, very useful in, in modern technologies like this. Uh, you mentioned before that a lot of these uh, sensitizing agents are similar to those found in, you know, lots of plant foods, highly pigmented plant foods. So it, would it be... Is it possible to think that if you eat a lot of these pigmented plant foods and you get a lot of full spectrum sun, that you're getting a constant, very low grade level of photodynamic therapy um, throughout your body? Probably not. Um, so it is possible to eat things and become photosensitive. Um, and it's generally not good for your skin. The, pr the problem is, you see, that the light from the sun doesn't penetrate deep in the body. So if you do eat certain plants, you can get to be photosensitive, but you generally get a bad sunburn. That's what happens. You get in the sun and you get a bad sunburn. And that is actually a side effect of clinical PDT that, you know, with some clinical photosensitizers, you have to stay out of the sun for a week after the treatment, or you could get a sunburn. So I wanted to switch gears to photobiomodulation for a little bit. Um, it's becoming, um, you know, quite a bit of an industry now to buy different types of lamps and LEDs that have, um, you know, 633 nanometers, um, you know, eight ten nanometers. So, what what's the what's the difference between the reds and the near infrareds, and um, all of the different fr uh, frequency spectrums? Right. So, obviously, near infrared is deeper than red for sure. Um, it penetrates at least two or three times deeper. Um, it turns out that if you combine both of them, the red, like say 650, 660, and the near infrared, like 810, 850, they seem to have a, a sort of synergistic effect to some degree. So now that everybody's using LEDs, it's become quite common to have an array with alternating red and near infrared LEDs. So that have 850 and 660 is a very popular combination. Um, if you ask me to choose red or near infrared, I would pick near infrared. You know, it's, it penetrates deeper. It's probably a bit more powerful. And it doesn't distract you by being dazzling to the eyes. If you've got a 
powerful red LED array, you can hardly look at it. You know, it doesn't damage your eyes at all, but it is a bit dazzling. So, um, right. the, the bit in between in the 700s is not very active. It seems to miss the peaks of the chromophores and the tissue. So you would not choose, say, 730 nanometers. It wouldn't do anything. Speaking of the chromophores in the tissue, um, I've heard you speak about, you know, water being the principal chromophore in, in the body. Have you... No, no, no that's, that's not correct. I mean, what, you know, I, I started to talk about water being a chromophore recently, but, yeah, but yeah. it's quite clear that mitochondria are the principal chromophores in the body, quite clear. Okay. Now, whether it's cytochrome C oxidase or other cytochromes, but well, the mitochondria are the big reservoir of pigments which are non-heme, not hemoglobin or myoglobin. Right? All the other pigments are in the mitochondria, um, especially in the near infrared. So water is an interesting chromophore because it's, if you look at it, it's clear, it's not colored. Um, even if you look at it in the infrared, it's not particularly absorbing. Um, you know, so the effects of water are quite subtle and involve, you know, increased vibrational energy, which is heat, basically, but not measurable heat. So you don't heat up the tissue to a measurable degree, but you can perhaps disturb the conformation of proteins such as ion channels, for instance. Um, yeah, no, so, but it is, having said that, it is quite clear that the main chromophores are located in the mitochondrial respiratory chain. So there's a lot of talk about um, cytochrome C ox oxidase, and obviously yep. that that work was done by you know Tina Carew um, back a few decades ago. But I, I spoke to John Metrophanis um, a couple of months ago, and he said that there were a few studies coming out that there were um, cytochrome C oxidase. Uh, there were rats without this cytochrome C oxidase, and they were still getting benefits from the photobiomodulation. So yep. do you think that there are other similar chromophores in the mitochondria that are helping to boost mitochondrial activity? Right. And they're all cytochromes. So there, I don't know how many cytochromes are in the mitochondria. About a dozen, I think. A dozen different cytochromes. And the name cytochrome just means a pigment of cells, right? Cyto and chrome. I mean, um, so as I said, the mitochondria where all the pigments live. And it's it's difficult to find out which of these cytochromes is actually doing the business. I mean, I still think that cytochrome C oxidase does something. I'm convinced it does. But, you know, there was a, an attractive hypothesis that you could dissociate inhibitory nitric oxide from cytochrome C oxidase. But despite people trying to prove that hypothesis. It hasn't been possible. But nitric oxide is definitely produced with PBM, for sure. The question is, where does it come from? Um, you know, reactive oxygen species are definitely produced, but you get those by 
increasing the activity of mitochondria. So calcium changes that you can easily measure, which may be due to mitochondrial changes, but that was one reason why people started to think about light-sensitive ion channels instead of calcium changes. And then people figured out that there were light-sensitive ion channels, which actually insects use for vision. So insects do not rely on rods and cones like mammalian species do. Insects have these transient receptor potential ion channels in their eyes, which are light sensitive. And some of these light sensitive ion channels are in mammalian cells, including the eyes, which is, um, was discovered as a method of regulating the diurnal rhythms via these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. I think the whole business of light-sensitive ion channels and heat-sensitive ion channels is still under investigation. But I suspect they will definitely turn out to be involved in PBM mechanisms. So photobiomodulation seems to have a very... Um substantial effect on the function of the mitochondria. I was wondering how, um, like if you were to use like, let's say a juve panel or, or one of these large, you know, um, mixed frequency panels, how does that weigh up against uh, full spectrum sunlight? Right. So first of all, if you have full spectrum sunlight, you've got to protect yourself from the ultraviolet because it's clear really dangerous to get too much UV from sunlight, obviously depending on your skin pigmentation. Um, you know, sunlight is beneficial. And there was a lot of, 100 years ago, there a lot of clinics built up on the mountains for heliotherapy. Now, why the mountains? That's an interesting question. And if you read what the folks at the time said it was the temperature, that was the cold air up on the mountains that was beneficial. But my personal opinion is it's the oxygen tension. So if you go up in the mountains, there's less oxygen in the atmosphere, and that means your mitochondria metabolism changes. So I think the reason why heliotherapy is much more effective if you go up in the mountains is to do with the oxygen. So by and large, if you just lie on the beach, even with slathering yourself with SP50, yeah, it'll do you some good, I guess, but not a huge amount. So um, with the with the sun, you've got also got the far infrared um, coming in as well. Does that have any sort of substantial effect, you know, these longer wavelengths? Yeah, it's near, with the sunlight, it's near infrared, right? The sun, the far infrared can't really get through the atmosphere. Um, but there is near infrared in sunlight, yeah, and I'm sure that does something. I mean, the peak of sunlight is in the green. So by the time you get to 800, there's not that much left in sunlight, actually. Right. Um, is there any um, requirement to take into account circadian rhythm when you're using photobiomodulation? Like, is there a time of day when 
photobiomodulation would work best or, or it wouldn't work uh, as well as the other times of the day? Well, I mean, that, that depends on the wavelength. So, I mean, it's quite clear that if you're going to expose yourself to blue light, you need to do it in the morning. Blue light in the morning is actually quite good for you. But blue light at night, as you know, because you've got your red lights on, is <laughs> not going to be good. You want red light to generate melatonin and help you sleep. Whereas blue light in the morning will tone down your melatonin and wake you up. Um, now, near infrared, I doubt it makes any difference. Because, you know, once you get into the 800s, the effect on melatonin is minimal. I'm not saying there's no effect, but it's not much. So it's likely that near infrared in the 800 region is just as good in the morning as the evening. But it does help you sleep, for sure. So, if going to sleep is what you want, then you can use your near infrared before you go to bed, and that'll work fine. So why why does uh, near infrared help you sleep? Does it have something to do with um, creating melatonin or, or allowing the release of melatonin? Or uh, personally, I think it's more its effect on the brain. That's my personal. But of course, it depends where you put the near infrared light. I mean. If you put it on your head, that will definitely help you sleep. I mean, if you use a whole panel, that will probably work as well because there's undoubtedly a systemic effect. So it's not just where you put the light. Um, I know personally, I noticed that uh, it does make you very, very sleepy if you use it before bedtime. And um, I mean, it makes me wonder because I know there. Uh, is increasing use of um, intranasal uh, yeah. infrared light. Um, so what, what might be the benefits of using intranasal photobiomodulation be? Well, I, I, my personal opinion is intranasal is solely a systemic delivery. You know, if you talk to Lou Lim, he says, oh, you stick a little LED up your nose and some of it gets into your brain. You know, if you look at the tissue optics, that ain't going to happen. There's an awful long way and a lot of tissue between your nose and your brain. So I think it's absorbed by the circulating blood in the nasal mucosa, which is very rich in capillaries, and it's transferred to you around the body, including the brain. So and you can also so put it on the on your wrist, but you've got veins fairly superficial in your wrist. And, you know, if you, if you use a, a large panel, by definition, you're exposing a lot of your body. So significant amount of light will get absorbed in the blood. So whatever the systemic mediator is, the more skin you can expose to the light, the more of it you'll make. And how about the dose response curve? Because I'm I'm aware that the the curve is it's not a linear curve. More equals better. There is a there is a point of diminishing returns. So, how if you were to use you know one of these panels, how would you know uh, what the minimal effective dose is and what the best dose is? Right. So the the thing that confuses people even more than you've just mentioned is that different people respond differently. So some individuals have 
highly sensitive to light, red, near-infrared light. Um, some individuals, as I say, are like blocks of wood. You can shine light on them all day and nothing will happen. I mean, the majority are in between. You know, it's like a bell curve. It is the hypersensitive individuals that will most often complain that they got adverse effects from photobiomodulation. Okay. And if your question is, how do you know who these hypersensitive individuals are? And the answer is, well, they're hypersensitive. They complain about all sorts of things. You know, they're allergic. They uh, don't like loud noises. They don't like bright light. They uh, can only eat certain kinds of food. You know, their whole life seems to be governed by being hypersensitive. So if you're going to treat these people with photobiomodulation, be very careful because they're the ones that complain <laughs> all sorts of things going wrong. <laughs> you know, the, the majority of people, as I say, in the middle, and it's difficult to overdose them on light. I'm not saying you can't do it, but, you know, most, and it's not a sudden drop off, right? Most people can figure it out by trial and error. And if, if they think that, well, you know, I got some benefit, um, you're kind of constrained by the length of time it's going to take. But there again, you can get a more powerful device. So if you have a two-watt LED device, for instance, you use it for 15 minutes, you say, that's good, that's nice. Um, use it for 30 minutes and you it's better, then yeah, eventually what you're going to do is get a more powerful device. You don't have to spend three hours lying under this device. <laughs> um, so, yeah, most people can figure that out for themselves over time. Um, it makes me want to ask about contraindications with photobiomodulation. You mentioned before that um, shining it on a tumour is probably not a good idea. Um, are, are there any other contraindications with using uh, red and near-infrared light? Well, I mean, you know, the historic... And I, I am not convinced that shining it on a tumour is necessarily bad, right? Everybody thinks it's bad. And you know, because nobody wants to do any damage and get sued, nobody does it. But there have been a few animal experiments and even one or two clinical trials shining light directly on the tumor that have been beneficial but you know nevertheless having said that and the reason they're beneficial is probably due to stimulating the immune system you know, so obviously the you know tumors have a lot of immune cells in them which are not doing much but if you can sort of wake these immune cells up they can perhaps fight the tumor now, the other thing is infections. People think, well, you could stimulate the bacteria to grow. And as you've talked about Tina Carew, a lot of her early experiments were with bacteria. So undoubtedly, you can stimulate bacteria. But there again, you can stimulate the host response. You know, so once you accept you can stimulate the host response, you could think about treating tumours and infections. But nevertheless, nobody does it, just in case. And the other, you know, universal contraindication is pregnancy, which in my mind, 
nobody's investigated. And it, it's relatively easy to do it in animal models with pregnant mice and rats. Yeah, and there's been one or two studies, but everything we know about the mechanisms would suggest that it, modulation would be beneficial to the developing fetus. It's just that nobody's really investigated it. And again, because nobody wants to get sued, you don't generally put the light on the belly of a pregnant woman. That's so interesting. I, I hadn't thought about the the pregnancy aspect of it, but I, I yeah, I can't imagine it would be too damaging. But um, yeah, I guess you never can I mean, tell. These are these are difficult studies to do. Um, you wrote uh, one of my favorite papers called Infrared Light Friend or Foe, um, uh -huh. and in that paper you um, talk about this idea of preconditioning of the skin with infrared light as it would be present in the early AM light for um, to prepare it for UV exposure. Can you talk a little bit more about how that might work? Well, I mean, the, that, that was a theory. Uh, not my theory, but a theory somebody um, came up with for evolutionary why have humans uh, evolutionarily become responsive to red light. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly correct that you can use red light as a sunscreen. So if you're going to expose yourself to potentially damaging UV, sunbathing, what have you, you can use pre-exposure with red light as a sunscreen. So that definitely works. Now, whether that evolved as a protection, who can tell? So, I mean, the red, the strength of the red light of the sun is pretty minimal. You know, I mean, it's it's way less than you would use for that a red LED panel. I mean, it might work. I mean, another right. interesting one of these crazy hypotheses was that um, you know how did humans evolve to get a big brain? Okay. And the answer was that they lost their hair. So there was an awful lot more of the body and the head absorbing light. And once that happened, that's over you know, hundreds of millions of years stimulated the brain to grow. <laughs> Who can tell? I like that idea. That uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I think that's a uh... Uh, a hypothesis, but an interesting one nonetheless. Um, this, I, the also the idea about infrared light preconditioning the skin makes a lot of sense evolutionarily as well. I was just wondering that you know there are places like um, using UV light for psoriasis and um, lots of use in tan for uh, in tanning beds in you know northern latitude countries should infrared light be used in conjunction with uv lamps in that in these, these scenarios to help buffer the the damage that might occur yeah. i think that's perfectly sensible so you know it's definitely true that the vitamin d you generate by exposing your skin to ultraviolet is more effective than taking it as a supplement i think that's been well established 
So if you're going to expose yourself to sunlight to generate vitamin D, it would make sense to use near-infrared as a protection, yeah, in addition to its established benefits on its own. Awesome. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great tip as well, especially from uh, sunny Australia as, as we come into summer. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the brain because it seems like this is a bit of a specialty area for you and looking at uh, neurodegeneration and the use of photobiomodulation. So um, where did where did the use of um, photobiomodulation start in looking at healing neurodegenerative diseases? Well, I mean, the, the, the first big application for photobiomodulation of the brain was actually in stroke, where there was a, a company called Phototherapy that actually got to phase three trials of a near-infrared laser treatment for stroke. So this was patients who were brought to the emergency room within 24 hours of a stroke, had near-infrared light put on their head. Um, in the trial, they actually had the head shaved. It was all over the head, but they had a laser. Um, now, the phase one and the phase two trials were actually very promising and had significant advantages to this. But the large phase three trial actually did not reach a significant effect. So it was abandoned and the company unfortunately went bust. So an awful lot of people lost money and lost um uh, lost belief in the effectiveness of photobiomodulation for the brain because of the failed stroke trial. Now, it was a single treatment with light within 24 hours. And although a single treatment works fine in mice and rats and even rabbits, I think it's unreasonable that a single treatment would work perfectly in humans. Um, so that really stopped the use of PBM for stroke. Now we did a lot of studies of PBM for traumatic brain injury in mice and rats in the laboratory and that worked fine as well. And again, a single exposure could remarkably protect the mice and the rats from you know, neurological disability and uh, increase the learning and memory and uh, reverse depression and anxiety and all these symptoms you get with chronic traumatic brain injury. Um, so then people started to use it on humans and both for acute TBI, which was a trial at Mass General, and then chronic TBI, which Marnie Naser and uh, her group have, have uh, carried on. So that seems to work well, and other people are doing it for TBI now, usually chronic TBI, because acute is really difficult to do. You've got to get people who are brought into the emergency room with a head injury, and um, it's not easy to do those trials. But chronic TBI is an awful lot of people whose lives are pretty much destroyed because they had a head injury, and they, you know, they never really recover from it. And it helps these people a lot. So 
then, you know, people started to think about neurodegenerative disease, which was uh, <clears throat> Lou Lim and Violet focused on Alzheimer's. And in, in Australia there, you're focusing on Parkinson's. And the results from both these seem to be very promising. Um, you know, and now you can get LED helmets you can put on, near-infrared LEDs or the Violet have their specific headset that they claim excites, you know, specific parts of the brain. Um, and now other folks are looking at psychiatric disorders. So it seems to be very good for depression. And Paolo Cassano at Mass General has a photobiomodulation clinic for depression patients who don't respond to antidepressant drugs. Um, Anxiety, that seems to work well. Fred Schiff has just recently um, started working on opiate addiction. So by putting near-infrared light on the head, you can significantly reduce opioid cravings. And you may ask how all these things work. So there are many actions of photobiomodulation on the brain, but one of the most exciting is it reorganizes the brain connections of synapses. So we can reorganize synapses, create new synapses, and basically help the brain to rewire itself. You know, so a lot of these brain disorders like depression, anxiety, drug addiction, insomnia, are due to inappropriate wiring pathways in the brain which have sort of built up over the years, if you like. And if you can kind of shake them all up and with the effects of light, you can help them to reestablish the right connections. Um, obviously, you know, it increases cerebral blood flow, cerebral oxygenation, mitochondrial um, metabolism. And as you know, the brain consumes a large proportion of the body's glucose and oxygen, <laughs> considering its weight. Um, so increasing the energy um, production in the brain is a big deal. Um, reducing inflammation is important. Many brain disorders have excessive levels of neuroinflammation. So the microglia are inappropriately activated and they're producing lots of cytokines. And also failing to remove things. So if you've got amyloid plaque in your brain, the microglia are trying to remove it, right? But they're failing. And instead of removing the plaque, they're just pumping out cytokines, which is really damaging. So by switching these microglia from the M1 state to the M2 state, you can reverse the inflammatory cytokines, but also stimulate them to engulf the amyloid plaque, which is why studies actually show that the amyloid plaque load is, is reduced in the brain. And there are, there are many brain disorders that are characterized by unwanted protein aggregates. And it's possible that photobiomodulation may be able to help all of these. 
And you're suggesting that it's a it's an indirect effect through the microglial cells that are helping to clean up the the brain um, that are being yeah, stimulated by the red light. That's well, the near infrared light because yeah. red light doesn't really get into the brain. If, if the systemic effect by being absorbed by the blood is important, then you probably could use red light. But most people use a near infrared helmet on your head. And especially the forehead where there's no hair. Try and get as much light into the brain. Does it have to be um, placed directly on the head? I know there are there were some uh, studies done that looked at anywhere they could get light to get to the bone marrow would have a systemic effect through these uh, mitokines, these mitochondrial signaling cells. Is is that could you approach it from that that direction as well? Well. You know, obviously, a lot of the healing effects of photobiomodulation rely on the stimulation of stem cells and progenitor cells. I mean, that's one reason why it's so healing things. Now, you obviously, the main niche for stem cells in the body is the bone marrow. I mean, there are niches all over, but certainly the bone marrow has the most stem cells. Now, the question is, how much light gets to the bone marrow. I mean, bones are transparent to light. I mean, they scatter light quite well, but they're actually white, so they don't absorb light. So it's possible that, you know, the light can scatter around the bones and get to the bone marrow. Um, you know, Uri Oron, who works on this, generally, you know, in large animals, inserts a fiber into the bone marrow, usually the shin, who actually drills a hole into the bone and sticks a fiber in. Um, but in humans, no, he didn't do that. He just shone it on the human and he, he detected increased circulating progenitor cells. So it's quite possible that, you know, if you had a large panel, you would increase the circulating progenitor cells. Now, in the, you put the light on the head, the skull has calvarial bone marrow. So there's bone marrow in your skull. And that would get the light before the brain, right? So it's possible that you're stimulating stem cells in the skull. That's, um, that's fascinating. I, I, think, I think maybe even using both at the same time or concomitantly could be um, uh, maybe even uh, an, an excellent way to approach it as well. But um, you've got me thinking about um, collagen, um, which is something that uh, is well known that uh, infrared light or near infrared light sort of stimulates the uh, production of collagen, muscle recovery, um, healing. Uh, what is it the near infrared or the, or the red frequencies that are doing that? I mean, uh, as you said, the near infrared always penetrates deeper. Um, you know, I know muscles, people have used red LEDs quite a lot, but I think now people are using a combination because there is some evidence that using red plus near infrared together is better than the sum of the parts. Yeah, yeah. 
for sure. I think um, most of the panels that I've seen are, are a combination and that just seems to be par for the course at the moment. Um, with the photobiomodulation on the brain, um, it's fascinating that it can help with uh, depression and anxiety. Uh, have there been any studies on, uh, you know, autism, Asperger's, ADHD, uh, conditions like those? Yeah. So there's uh, a couple of ladies have a company in America that are doing a trial on autism in little kiddies. You know, so they did some pilot studies and found that little kiddies, three, four, five years old, responded very well. Um, so now they're doing a trial and, you know, talk to them. They seem to think it's going well. Um, I think for ADHD, it's probably just anecdotal. You know, occasionally you get a case report sort of thing. Um, but you would expect that, you know, in, in little kiddies whose brains are still sort of forming all the connections, that the light would be quite powerful in these. If, so, if, if there is some sort of magical way that the, the photobiomodulation can get the brain connections to develop how they're meant to develop. That's, um, I wasn't so much aware of the way that red light influenced the wiring of the brain so much, but it seems, so do you, do you, do you think that it might be working through that mechanism in, in these I think, I think that's well? probably, yeah. The, the, we also showed in, in mice that you could stimulate the growth of new brain cells from progenitor cells. So there's parts of your brain, the uh, dentate gyrus and the sub, subventricular zone that have these progenitor cells. And these can develop into functional neurons, which can find the way to where they're meant to be. <clears throat> now, this is not a common process adult. I mean, it happens, but certainly we showed the light could accentuate this. And the, you know, this is why you can repair damage from a stroke and a TBI. But insufficient neurogenesis has been linked with all sorts of brain conditions, all sorts. <clears throat> so insufficient synaptogenesis, insufficient neurogenesis, excessive neuroinflammation, uh, depressed mitochondrial metabolism, you know, insufficient cerebral blood supply. I mean, all these run through an astonishing number of different brain disorders. <clears throat> the single most important molecule you can have in your brain is BDNF, brain-derived de neurotrophic factor. And we showed that we had upregulation of BDNF after photobiomodulation. And, you know, and that could be an important mechanism. Um, when I was speaking to John Metrophonis, um, he mentioned that you had said possibly the most important molecule in the brain uh, is BDNF, and he, he seems to agree with you. What role is um, photobiomodulation playing on modulating BDNF in the brain? It's increasing it. Um, Quite why? I mean, who knows? 
I think it's probably something to do with the neuroprogenitor cells. But they respond to BDNF. Which cells are actually producing it? I don't think we know. That's fascinating. I, 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 know, I know mostly of BDNF from um, doing exercise and, and upregulating it in the brain that way. But Well, well and, and, and that's linked with ROS. So, you know, undoubtedly, photobiomodulation produces some reactive oxygen species. Generally, not a lot, not enough to do any damage, and probably only briefly. But that also, as you say, applies to aerobic exercise. Um, you know, so I even wrote a bit once that in some ways, photobiomodulation could be considered as an exercise mimetic that it produced lots of the physiological effects of aerobic exercise without the hard work. <laughs> you probably want both together, actually. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I think so too. But, you know, it's nice to have both of those tools in the toolbox for sure. Um, how about just photobiomodulation for general cognition? I've, I've seen, I think it was a paper that you co-authored that showed that using um, photobiomodulation on the brain uh, helped with making cognitive tasks seem uh, easier to undertake. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, the idea about that was it was a very complicated memory task. And, you know, obviously when Agnes designed the study, she was probably expecting people to do better on the task because that's generally what, what these folks do. But what she found was the, the subjects were not better at doing the task, but in order to do the task, they consumed a lot less oxygen and glucose in the brain. So it that's, was easier uh, to do the task. They didn't actually get better at it, but it was easier for them to do it. That's fascinating. Um, I would like to switch gears to talk a little bit about um, the microbiome and the possible effect of um, PBM on the uh, microbes that live in our gut. Um, what, what's, what has been your experience with this? I've, I've heard you speak about uh, you know, a team that's developed a pill that you take that once it yeah. reaches a certain point, spews out light and then you can collect it at the other end. Um, I think the, the idea of the pill was to do with intestinal inflammation. So it was Crohn's disease and irritable bowel syndrome. I don't know whether it would have worked, but that was the idea that you could have an LED pill that would switch itself on when it got to the right part of the intestines because it was pH, had a pH sensor. So when it got to the right place, it would switch itself on. I think that was just an idea. The folks that are keen on photobiomodulation, the microbiome, are in Australia. I mean, it's Anne Leavitt and Brian Bicknell. That, that are, and they have a company which, you know, because they're part of this Parkinson's effort. And their idea is in addition to putting the light on the head for Parkinson's, you also put it on the belly. And the reason you put it on the belly, according to them, is you will affect the microbiome in the guts. I'm not sure if that's correct because, 
you know, putting the light on the belly is probably fine because there's a lot of systemic absorption, there's a lot of muscle, blood flow, but how much actually gets to the guts and quite why it should affect the microbiome is not clear to me. I yeah, mean, I mean, something that I've <laughs> I've been told is that the amount of light that would be reaching the intestines would be so minimal because there's a lot of um, a lot to get through to reach a the... lot to get through. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, um... and, but but I mean, it doesn't mean that if you if the light is absorbed in the blood, that it could be doing something in the body that results in changes in the microbiome. That seems quite reasonable to me. Um, if that was the case, you know, then something like a whole body light bed would be the best way to test that. Does using a whole body light bed change your microbiome? Um, I, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe bacteria um, emit uh, quite a bit of light in the infrared range. Um, no, no? no. Okay. nothing, nothing emits quite a lot of light in, in any range. People have talked about biophotons. Biophotons are incredibly weak. You know, there are nine orders of magnitude lower than visible light that you can see. I mean, you know, you need single photon counters to even measure them. So people like to talk about biophotons and communi cells communicating by light, but it's all completely hypothetical. So, and the reason is that because these photons are so incredibly difficult to detect, even if cells emit them, neighboring cells can't detect them. There is no biological single photon detector. Right, so you think that the, the the emission from bacteria would be, you know, so minimal that it's basically basically a wash. It's not going to be yeah, making absolutely. Yeah, yeah right. Um, have you looked into um, any beneficial effects of using um, laser um, lasers on acupuncture points? Yeah, I think that's fine. I think acupuncture is fine. And using a laser is probably better than a needle because you get the added benefit of the photobiomodulation. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and how about um, PBM for the heart? Um, I, I imagine the heart is maybe accessible um, through the chest to. Yeah, so, I mean, a few people have used photobiomodulation during percutaneous coronary intervention, you know, stenting and various fibers, um, which will lessen uh, restenosis after, you know, various balloon angioplasty, that sort of thing, and stenting. It'll, it'll help. The Russians actually, interestingly enough, use the same approach to go in the femoral artery, go all the way up into the brain. So they delivered light into the brain with a fiber optic inserted in the femoral artery. So you can either go into the heart or you can go into the brain. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Catherine 
surgical intervention. I mean, it's not something you would do in a doctor's office. And does have you been aware of any studies that have looked at using photobiomodulation on things like um, heart rate, blood pressure, um, blood sugars, all of these sort of me yeah. metabolic markers? Yeah, certainly tends to reduce blood pressure and to some degree normalize blood sugar. Now the question is, you know, what's going on there? So blood pressure is almost certainly sort of, you know, systemic nitric oxide and, and nitrite, that the release of the nitric oxide and the nitrite will reduce blood pressure. The normalization of blood sugar is probably involving the muscles. Um, you know, so you increase the mitochondrial metabolism in the muscles significantly, even without exercise, although a lot more with exercise. Uh, so that will reduce blood sugar just because you're burning it up. Um, you may be able to sort of normalize blood lipids to some degree. So there's been some studies on that. Um, again, it's probably you want to put the light over as much body surface as possible. So a big panel or a whole body light bed. And in general, as with anything else, combine it with exercise, right? You know, when, when any of these metabolic things, further biomodulation is going to increase the benefits of exercise for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think there's a there's a lot that can be done there. Um, I noticed in your book, I've been I've been going through the big handbook of photomedicine, um, and there's a chapter on dentistry, um, which is uh, fascinating to me. Um, have you um, looked into the uh, the possible therapeutic use of photobiomodulation in dentistry? Well, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not a dentist, but yeah, a lot of dentists really like photobiomodulation. So dentists all have lasers in their in their office. Um, and the lasers quite often are used for drilling holes and ablating and, and evening things. But you know, if you turn the power down and defocus the spot, you can use these lasers for photobiomodulation. So 1064 and 980 and, and 810, these are the sort of wavelengths. So they're very used to using wavelengths. And by turning the power down, they can switch away from you know, high power applications into photobiomodulation applications. And one dentist I talked to even used a carbon dioxide laser, a defocused CO2 laser, which is 10.6 microns to do photobiomodulation, which was is equivalent to far infrared. So that was quite interesting. Fascinating. Um, you know, but they do it for reducing pain, inflammation, stimulating healing, all the usual things in the mouth, which it's quite necessary. So just as a general takeaway for, you know, like someone who is healthy, what, what, what do you think you would recommend as far as using um, light therapeutically 
to stay healthy and, um, you know, maybe even boost your health? What, what, are, what are some things that you could do? Well, I, th- I think every, every household should have at least one LED device which could be a flexible, wearable device, something you can wrap around that's got Velcro, or it could be a large panel that you can lie on. Um, They're not that expensive, you know, a couple of thousand, you get quite a nice large panel. Um, I mean, a whole body light bed would be good, but they're very expensive. So you wouldn't expect households to have a whole body light bed. and then the, another one to consider is a helmet you can put on your head. So, um, you know, maybe households will have two or three LED devices when it really takes off. But, uh, yeah, and yeah, I think you can use it every day. It's sort of 15 minutes a day is the sort of time that people have to spare. And maybe if they had a, if you had a large panel, right, you could, you could, lie flat on the bed, lie on top of it. You could use it as a pillow for you, put your head on to stimulate the brain. Um, I think that would be the, the, if you had to choose one, I think I would get a large panel. Right. And are there any um, particular uh, brands that you're aware of that are, you know, trustworthy and uh, that are uh, effective? Or are they all using much of the same technology? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think Juve was the first one to market large panels, but I think Platinum is just as good as Juve. So, but I, I think these large panels are made by several companies now. So. Mm-hmm. But certainly, mm-hmm. Juve is a high-quality device. It's going to last for a long time. Yeah, certainly, and, and I, I think I think you're right as well. Photobiomodulation; these these panels will become something that's very much integrated into everyday life. And I've I've heard you say that it's uh, within the realm of possibility that in the next, you know, within the next decade, ambulances will all be fit with um, these uh, panels as well for you know first responders. Um, do you think that ambulances and hospitals will be required to have this sort of technology in the next, in the coming decades? I mean, certainly an ambulance, I think, is important because if you've had a heart attack or a stroke, you're at risk of brain damage and it is time sensitive. It really is. Um, hospitals is tricky because, A, you know, they're not set up to do photobiomodulation. Everybody who's tried to get photobiomodulation into normal hospitals has found it really hard work. Um, You know, whether it's in the emergency room or the operating room or wherever, on the wards, it's it's really been difficult. I think that's going to be the the luck the last frontier actually yeah given that these um treatments are time sensitive as with respect to damage to the brain do you think that um impact sports things like the nfl 
um, even even soccer players who are you know head head butting the ball. Do you think that we'll see a, a time where uh, players will need to do photobiomodulation before the game and after the game um, as part of their contracts to make sure that their brains are? That's an interesting idea to put in the contract. I mean, yeah, I'm not really heavily into sports medicine, but I have heard that most major professional teams have photobiomodulation devices, um, either in the with the training or you know when the players are taken off the pitch. Um, yeah, and the, the the teams that have tried it have good reports in terms of performance, you know, so combining photobiomodulation with a training regime definitely improves things. And, you know, in terms of delayed muscle soreness and speed of recovery from exercise, that's a big deal. And, you know, Kleber Ferrarese in Brazil has, has showed that the you, know, you can actually measure increased muscle mass if you put photobiomodulation into the training. So you can demonstrate the muscles get bigger. That's uh, that's fascinating. And uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be become a big part of um, sports in general. But before we finish up, I'd like to know what you're working on currently and, and what, what you think the future of photobiomodulation will look like. Well, so, you know, as you probably know, I retired from uh, Mass General two and a half years ago now. So I, I spend my time writing and editing. So um, you know, obviously I collaborate with a lot of these people. Uh, as I say, the, the brain is obviously a big deal. Um, as I say, Claver was in my lab. He has his own lab doing muscles and sports performance and recovery and uh, uh, yeah, other folks uh, work, working on you know, defined areas. So, so ophthalmology is really quite an interesting area. So Clark Tedford has a company with a device, Lumisera, that is a treatment for dry age-related macular degeneration, which there is no treatment for. So he thinks his device will become standard for ophthalmologists. That's um yeah I I think the, um photobiomodulation for the eye as well will be will be a big will be a big thing. I'm I'm trying to get on to your colleague uh, Glenn Jeffrey as well. I think he's doing some interesting work in that field. Um, but yeah, I mean. If uh, if there's anything else you you wanted to mention to people about uh, about your work before we go, I'm I'm happy to let you speak no, a little bit. I think we've covered quite a lot. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Um, well, I'll uh, I'll I won't hold you up any any longer. We've we've got through a, a hell of a lot of uh, content, and I've asked a lot of questions that I wanted to to ask. So I I can't thank you enough for coming on and and for doing all the work that you've done. Alrighty, nice talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you want to keep up with my work, you can find me using at Richie Flow Nutrition on social media. Thanks so much, everyone. Take care.